Patriotism has gone out of fashion. We seem to think our patriotic days are dead. We used to sing of our homeland with passion, but now we seem to shy away from it instead. I think it's time to hit the nail right on the head. This is a great country, a great country. So let's shout it clear and loud. Take a look in your history book, and you'll see why we should be proud. Hats off to America, the home of the free and the brave. If this is flag waving, flag waving, do you know? Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 7, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, A week ago today was the Broadway Flea Market and Grand Auction, and uh, after we recorded early on Sunday morning, you both uh, headed out to there. Did you find any gems? (laughs) Uh, frankly, the crowds were so intense, um, I didn't even make an effort to do so. Uh, and I'm glad they were intense. I don't know how much I need, really. So uh, I was pretty good about just going to the Theater World uh, booth and uh, standing there and greeting people, seeing old friends, seeing new friends, making new friends. And uh, so I had a wonderful time while I was there. But I have to admit that um, they didn't profit from me at all. <laughs> and I actually didn't make it down there at all because I heard um... – from someone that it was really kind of hellacious as far as the crowds, you know, it's really too bad. Um, until I think two years ago, yeah, they used to have it, the, the event used to encompass not only Schubert Alley, but all of 44th and 45th street. Then last year, I think it was, uh, I think it was only 44th street and Schubert Alley. So they had that entire street not available to them. And then this year, uh, I heard it, it was back to 44th and 45th, but only one half of each street, uh, with the other half being kept open to traffic. Uh, so I, yeah, I had also heard that it was this just scarily crowded and I personally can't deal with that, which is too bad because I, I also heard um, from a friend that, uh, and I knew this from my own experience that you can get some incredible, incredible deals there and not only on, uh, you know, obvious things, but sometimes like one of a kind 
items, things that are not were not generally available uh, and were very limited edition and are not going to happen again. It seems to me that those are the kind of things that one would really want to focus on. Uh, uh, you know, really, really low prices for specialty items made for specific shows. So I, I would advise anyone uh, who who does attend the the flea market and auction in the future to keep your eye open for those. Um, because those, you know, uh, those are really, really special. I mean, it's great to pick up CDs and and vocal selections at low prices. That's fine, but the one of a kind items are the ones that uh, that are really going to be something special in your collection. A gentle correction: uh, this was not the first year where they bisected the street for traffic and um, the uh, wares itself. Uh, I, that happened at least last year, uh, and it does make a difference. And it is too bad. I understand traffic needs to flow, but uh, it truly is too bad. And I hope there's a different solution as time goes on, because um, it does make it a big, big crowd fest and um, very, very hard to even see what's going on, let alone pick up things and look. So um, all things considered, though, it's very nice for out-of-towners who don't get to Broadway very often to get the chance to pick up merchandise on shows that they would have liked to have seen or saw on tour and missed. Um, because there are, to be frank, a lot of uh, items from shows that closed prematurely and uh, the merchandise booth still had a lot of stuff left over. There were plenty of um, – mm refrigerator magnets um, I, I saw from afar and uh, the, uh, silver frames uh, that commemorate opening nights of shows which are, are nice to have too so really um, I do think it's it's a wonderful thing for out of towners to come and also to meet people I mean that's what's really great about it the human factor because you know that everybody who's there has the same passion that you do uh, or else they wouldn't be there and stay in in the, the the chaos that it is. It's also fun to see all the T-shirts and uh, memorabilia that people put on them. And you might say, no, no, you just mean T-shirts. You don't mean memorabilia. I mean, I saw people with patches on, um, with, with <laughs> little ornaments. One person, um, I don't know who it was, said to me, "This, these are the things I decorate my Christmas tree with every year. You know, so, so pinned on to a shirt. Um, saw a lot of shirts of Hirschfelds. Um, one, a, a guy who has um, a gypsy um, Hirschfeld on his T-shirt. Uh, so a lot of things like that. So it's, but it's just nice to know. Um, it really does um, substantiate what Sondheim wrote in Into the Woods. No one is alone. Not on this day, I'll tell you. Not on this day. Absolutely, and and you and also it's a it's one of those events that's like a, a great leveler in a good sense. You can mm. see you know pretty big stars walking around. Absolutely, uh, you know, yeah. aside from those who are at the autograph boots and yeah. things of that right. sort. Yeah, yeah, they're interested too. Yeah. So uh, Broadway Cares raised over $900,000 on the uh, flea market last week. So that is really awesome as well. It's the actually the 32nd uh, flea market, which uh, I, I'm not sure I was there for the beginning of it. Do, do you guys remember the very first uh, genesis of this? Not at all. Not, you know, I, I suppose not the first, but they they really quickly became the event. And I remember they, for years, they had a wonderful, wonderful auctioneer from Sotheby's. Um, I, uh, she is not there anymore. I 
think she may have died, but um, but she was incredible, and I, uh, I I'm sure they have somebody, you know, they have really good people doing it now. That's always. Uh, the auction can, you know, can be very, very exciting. What's uh, exciting to me was, you know, coming through the subways uh, and having, uh, I came into town uh, and I forgot that the auction was going, uh, that the flea market and auction was going on. And I see people walking through the subways with uh, six foot tall uh, posters of Broadway shows and pieces of the theater. Like I saw somebody with a war paint, a sign that hung out on the marquee that they they had evidently sure. purchased. <laughs> like, is it the apocalypse that has happened above the ground? Uh, and people are taking pieces of Broadway home with them to replant in the future civilization. What is curious is the fact that three sheets, those are the big posters that you see at Schubert Alley or on the side of the Broadway theater, um, meaning the Broadway. I wish they changed the name of that goddamn thing because really um, (laughs) (laughs) people must think I mean generically the Broadway theater, all of them. But there's a theater called the Broadway Theater where King Kong is now, in fact. Um, Anyway, there are a lot of three sheets on the side. So uh, if you can visualize those, that's what I mean. Um, Those were going for about a hundred dollars. There was uh, I remember I saw one for curtains. And um, the thing is that a lot of people prefer, of course, window cards, which are much smaller. And especially if you live in New York, our apartments can't take many um, three sheets. So uh, so those sometimes uh, have a tough time selling, even though all of us would rather have three sheets uh, if we had the space for them than the window cards uh, because they're, they're so glorious. And uh, so uh, but I, $100 was basically the tag for those. And I did see those selling. All right, so let's get into our review section. Peter, you got a chance to see Bernhard Hamlet uh, over at the American Airlines Theater. Michael and I talked about it last week. What was your thought about it? I liked it quite a bit, actually. Um, you know, some years ago there was a play called *The Temperamentals*, um, a euphemism, uh, or, or maybe not so much of a euphemism for homosexuals. But I will tell you, this is the play that should be called *The Temperamentals* because I mean, you have a lot of temperaments on the stage here, and how could you not with people like Sarah Bernhardt and um, Edmund Rostand? Um, she, of course, the great actress of way back when. Uh, he, of course, the great writer from way back when, and uh, we also have. Uh, such obscure names, but people who have made their theatrical marks, such as Constant Coquelin. So here we are, and we are experiencing a situation where non-traditional casting is coming up for the first time, perhaps, since Shakespeare had men playing women, and that's Sarah Bernhardt wants to play Hamlet. So uh, can she? Will she? Um, that's, of course, the conundrum that's going on here. But Jenna McTeer, of course, is quite wonderful, and she's quite wonderful in the way that uh, she's supposed to be, that uh, she is this grand dame, uh, and she knows it. But it wasn't just a case that she strode the stage like a colossus. What I really enjoyed watching was the way she uses her hands. It's really remarkable, their performance in themselves. I would say that um, Janet McTeer is the Zoe Caldwell of her generation, and I don't think I can give anybody a higher compliment than that. Um, So... Um, here she is, and she wants Edmund Rostan to do it. Now, a lot of people have taken issue with the fact that, wait, 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 you're hiring a French guy to do an English translation of a play? Well, certainly, uh, the esteemed Michael Feingold has certainly um, done uh, translations of of German plays, and uh, nobody's thought twice about that, so I don't think that's really a problem. And also, here's the big thing. They're lovers. 
All right. You know, how many times do we give lovers uh, jobs that we <laughs> that we think they can do and hope they can do um, basically because they're our lovers and therefore, you know, we want to see them employed. We, not that he needs the job, but I, mean, you, I think you must know what I mean, that lovers get um, a, a lot of uh, opportunities that um, so-called regular people don't. So um, there are other cal- colorful characters, too. There's a critic who I wouldn't say is narrow minded. I would say he's closed minded. Um, and of course, Teresa Rebecca, um, who has had trouble with critics along the way. I don't mean that she's um, gotten to fights into the, in the lobby with them, but I mean, <laughs> she hasn't uh, received uh, rave reviews every time she's done anything. So uh, it's not uh, <laughs> unlikely that she would have um, a negative opinion to about critics. And uh, she gets them out through this um, closed-minded critic who just won't hear that it's, there's any possibility of a woman playing Hamlet. And um, now, uh, she all, Sarah Bernhardt also has a grown son, and um, there's, a, there's a tiny moment that really um, intoxicated me, and that was when the son came in, and he starts talking to his mother, uh, and he's going a mile a minute, and he takes off his hat, and he immediately, without even looking, he just puts his arm around him with the hat, expecting there's going to be a servant there who will take his hat. And I like that moment because it does show that he was grown up. He he grew up in um, an area of privilege that um, he's so used to having servants around that he just naturally assumes somebody is going to take the hat from him. So I thought that was a very clever bit. And um, I I don't know if that's actually in the script or if that was a clever idea that um, Morris von Stupnagel, the director, thought of. But whoever did, um, my compliments to the uh, chef. Anyway... um, uh, it, 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 I, I know this play has taken its lumps, and I, I, I really don't see it. Um, I will admit that there's a very expected thing that happens with the son, because the son is rooted in reality, and the mother is not. Um, he can't believe that she doesn't have any money. I mean, after all, she, she makes a lot. She makes substantially more than the average person does. Because um, she's a star, so where does the money go? And um, as we hear in the royal family, um, when Julie Cavendish says, it just goes. you know. And um, for these people, it does. But you do have a feet-on-the-ground son, and you have an airy uh, mother. So uh, that's always good for some sort of conflict, even if it seems familiar. Um, Dylan Baker plays Kaylin, and what's really great is he has a scene where he's acting with somebody else, and he's terrible. He stinks. And then he does a scene with Sarah Bernhardt, and he's quite wonderful, meaning that she actually makes him better than he is. And I thought that was a very clever idea. Um, so um, so you can always tell a great actress, too, by the way, um, by when uh, – well, a great performer. Let's put it that way. You can always tell a great performer for when that performer eats um, – you can still understand what that performer is saying. And I had an experience last week um, with uh, being earnest in um, in Stoneham, Massachusetts, where it's it's a musical version of the importance of being earnest. And uh, of course, you know, in the first scene, uh, we have a muffin. I'm sorry, um, cucumber sandwiches, and later we have muffin eating. And I'm telling you, the actor couldn't maneuver around that. Uh, you couldn't understand what he was saying. But here. Janet McTeer eats, and you can understand what she's saying. So, uh, again, another mark of a great actress. So I thought that was uh, terrific. Uh, the play 
I won't say goes off the rails, but it gets surprising because you expect it all, all to be about Hamlet and suddenly Cyrano de Bergerac comes in. And I did have a question about this because much is made at the beginning of the play that Sarah Bernhardt has made a, a, a good career basically from Camille. Um, but now she's too old. So now there's talk of her playing Roxanne. But if she's too old for Camille, she's too old for Roxanne. I guess the rebuttal would be that um, the same thing I was saying earlier about when when you're in love with somebody, you give that person breaks. And maybe Roxanne even knows that she's too old. But after all, it's his, it's his lover. So as a result, um, it, well, you know, uh, let's let's have her do it. A fabulous scene comes in when um, Roxanne's married. So his wife shows up and you can really tell the wife loves her husband from the vantage point that she is not going into the usual um, catfight that you might expect under circumstances like this. What she talks about is she's very concerned that if her husband does adapt Hamlet, that he won't get enough credit for it. What a wonderful way to show that she really loves him. So I thought that was very, very powerful. Um, so I like that quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I'm telling you, um, this play really worked for me. Uh, there were there were longers every now and then, uh, but um, but all in all, I found it a very rewarding evening. And not just for the fact that Janet McTeer is wonderful. I mean, a lot of people have said, uh, "Oh, you got to see it for Janet McTeer." Um, sure, fine, um, okay. You know, I, no argument there. But I think the play has a lot of worth as well. Just to clarify, um, unless I misunderstood you, Peter, Rostan is providing a French version, French translation of Hamlet. Oh, really? I missed that. And that, well, so, so it's not a problem in the sense that, that you said it before, but I think, as I discussed at length last week, I think it's, it, that leads to all sorts of other plot holes and problems that really don't make any sense at all. So I'm um, glad you liked the play, but I just thought it was... <laughs> But it was quite a mess, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's Bernard Hamlet. It's at the American Airlines Theater. It's playing through November 11th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, uh, you and I got a chance to see The Nap. Peter talked about it last week. So what's your take on The Nap? Oh, yeah. I, I don't have much to add uh, to what Peter said. I really liked the play, uh, and uh, I was surprised in, in one sense because uh, I, I – I was hoping that it would be really funny because it was Richard, written by Richard Bean, who gave us One Man, Two Governors, which was hilarious. Um, so I expected and hoped that it, that it would be really amusing in that sense. Uh, but it's directed by Daniel Sullivan, who's not really known for uh, that kind of comedy. Uh, but I thought he and the cast did a wonderful job uh, this, uh, with this play that is set in the world of snooker. Which is a <laughs> a British version of uh, well, a, a game that's that's similar to pool or billiards, and uh, the cast is very strong: John Ellison, Conley, Joanna Day, Ahmed Ali El Sayed, Ethan Hova, Heather Lind, Max Gordon Moore, Bavish Patel, Thomas J Ryan, and in a in a central role, Ben Schnetzer. Uh, but I wanted to especially single out Alexandra Billings, who I thought was excellent in, in a role that, like Peter, I, I, I'm, I sort of blush and hesitate to say the 
the, the name of the role, which is Waxy Bush. Uh, and I guess you'll have to see the play to understand uh, why that's the name. But uh, Alexander Billings is a trans actor who I saw in 2013 in L.A. in a updated musical version of Oliver Twist called Twist. And in that, she played Fagin, the Fagin wow. equivalent. Yeah. And that was the only time, really, I, I um, had ever seen her in anything. She's a she's known for her TV work as well. But I thought she was just fantastic uh, as, as Waxy Bush in the nap uh, in this Manhattan Theater Club production at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater. Uh, I, I did, if I'm going to be picky, I would say her Brit accent was not 100% uh, perfect. But in every other way, uh, energy, comic timing, facial expressions, she really was was excellent. And so I'm, I'm very glad that I saw the play uh, for, for the whole experience, but also for her performance. I really, really thought she was just terrific. I uh, am in agreement with you, Michael and Peter. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I, I the fact, um, after I saw it last Sunday, I went back in and read the reviews, which I thought were kind of uh, more harsh than I, I enjoyed it more than the reviewers enjoyed it. Um, and I thought it was very funny. I also had the the uh, I had the opportunity to talk with uh, our friend Lindsay Jones, who's a sound designer and uh, and uh, uh, writes music as well. And he did the sound design and wrote the music for the nap. Um, and, uh, he told me some stuff, you know, you're, you're actually seeing two live billiards, right. uh, games and you can't really predict that everything is going to go exactly the way that they expect it to go. And you also have, um, this is a billiards tournament, uh, that he is, uh, the main characters in. And it's broadcast on television, so they have these. They, they actually pull the billiards uh, table up on a very large screen above the stage, and then they have two TV commentators who are very similar to golf commentators, talking very lowly and calmly and things like that. And the two commentators are very, very funny because <laughs> they, in essence, it, it's loosely scripted, and they have to do things. And uh, Lindsay told me about a uh, one performance where. One of the balls skipped the table and went into the front row of the front row of the uh, audience, uh, and the commentators really had to get everything back on track there. I really enjoyed it, and uh, if I could say um, that it it sort of is similar to the sting that we saw at Paper Mill Playhouse uh, a uh -huh. few months back, um, a British version of the sting. Uh, but I won't say any more than that because I don't want to spoil it. But it is. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time, and I hope that uh, this has a life beyond November 11th, maybe in the regions or maybe in an extension or something like that. So uh, it was very good. Yeah, and, 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 and just to clarify there, uh, there, there are apparently uh, the, the people who do the commentary have to be prepared for various outcomes, various outcomes and, and various specific things that happen during the game because they are playing live. And I think that's fascinating. I'm not sure the extent uh, to which they, uh, you know, w w if, if it's all improvised, probably not. They probably have some scripted lines uh, prepared depending on various outcomes. But I think that's 
great. I, I'm not sure I can think of another example of that in a show that I've seen in the past. Hmm. All right. So uh, that wraps it up for the nap. It's playing again through November 11th at the Friedman. So uh, check it out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, you got down to the public theater to see Girl from the North Country, a uh, a show written and directed by Connor McPherson with music and lyrics by Bob Dylan. It's uh, People are calling it the Dylan Show. Some folks are calling it the Bob Dylan Show. So, uh, And it's a very hard ticket to get. So tell us about this Girl from the North Country. It is definitely not the Bob Dylan show. <clears throat> it's the Connor McPherson show. Uh, it really comes across as a play with music, uh, not simply because it's directed in such a way that uh, we don't get applause buttons. Um, there are only two opportunities for applause, and that's the end of each act. But uh, I, I do believe if you're, if you're doing that type of show, you really are doing a play with music. Uh, the music isn't essential to the show either. A lot of people say, you know, 1776 didn't need to be a musical. The script is so strong, it could have been a play. Um, you might feel the same way about this, too. In fact, um, while this show does not remotely have the half hour of non-music that 1776 does, there are a great deal of... Uh, dialogue that goes on before the music comes in to the point of which I even forgot it was a musical. Uh, the Dylan songs, which come from early, uh, middle and late career, uh, really uh, are, are pretty extraneous uh, much of the time. And um, they don't do any harm. Don't misunderstand me. But um, what we're really seeing here is um, a, a type of a glorified concert when you take the music into consideration. And I do believe that the, what we have here is the result of so many theater goers who uh, have discovered theater late in life uh, have been used to going to concerts. It's one of the reasons why when the lights go down, people cheer because that's what happens at concerts. And so con concert conventions are now um, very much a part of musical theater, whether uh, you approve of that or whether you hate that, that's the reality. And as a result, um, you see a lot of concert conventions <clears throat> such as, uh, people coming in to do background singing when uh, they don't technically belong on stage. There's a lot of that in this show. People are at stand-up mics, and they sing uh, at stand-up mics, even though the show takes place in the 30, and they don't look like the type of microphones in the 30. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter because it's a concert to many people. So out comes the rest of the cast going, ooh, you know, and that type of thing. And um, nobody bats an eyelash. I mean, I, I remember in 2001 when Bells Are Ringing was revived, and uh, after Faith Prince and Mark Kudish, who, by the way, is in the show, too, and is extraordinarily good in it, um, that Faith Prince and um, Mark Kudish sang Just in Time, and suddenly, uh, from offstage, you heard this chorus singing, uh, uh, joining in, even though they're not there, and I remember so many young people saying, ah, oh, that's so hokey. Well, uh, you know, is this any less hokey true to be... Look, I'm saying all sorts of negative things, and I don't mean to... I, I'm going to give this show the biggest compliment I can possibly give it, that when the intermission came, I didn't want it. I wanted the story to continue. It's a very, very, very powerful story uh, taking place in the Great Depression. And the Great Depression is really the villain here. Uh, we see a lot of unhappy marriages. Mark Kudish is married to a woman who does not believe in him at all anymore. But really, isn't it the Depression that's done him in? Stephen Bogardus is married to um, Mayor Winningham. Uh, she lost faith in him a long time ago. Well, the, the depression, you know, I mean, his place, which used to be their house, which is now called a guest house, 
which is um, a euphemism for a boarding house, um, they're going to lose it in a couple of months. And he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where the money's going to come from. He's starting an affair with a woman, and it's kind of interesting because she's black, and it's not non-traditional casting. It's established that she's black. And in the 30s, that's hot stuff. And the wife knows about it. The wife is in a vegetative state when we first meet him. Mayor Weddingham, you think she's going to have nothing to do for the whole show. She can talk plenty, and she can sing very well, including um, the famous Dylan hit, Like a Rolling Stone. Um, she does that extraordinarily well, and you might be very surprised if you don't think of Mayor Winningham as a singer, and why would you? Um, she's pretty dynamic, and by the way, she even goes to the piano a couple of times and plunks out a tune so she can play the piano, too, or at least she learned for this one. So, um, so there she is, a vegetable. He even has to feed her. But I'm telling you, when he's not around and nobody's listening, she's uh, she's quite a talker. And we really get the impression that uh, she's removed herself from him, but not for the rest of life. Um, they also have a daughter who was adopted. And this daughter uh, was black, too. And it was a case where um, Mayor Winningham wanted to adopt the daughter, and he, he was less likely to do so. But um, she got her way, and he's come to love the daughter. There's no question about that. And he thinks of her as a daughter. And she's pregnant. Or is she? There's a moment where the doctor suggests that it might be a hysterical pregnancy. We never know. People come into the boarding house. David Pitu plays a reverend. He ain't no reverend, believe me. Um, he, he's, he's certainly a comment. And in one of the loose ends that's not solved in this work, um, he tries to uh, blackmail uh, Mark Kudish, uh, one of the um, residents at the guest house, uh, and uh, says, you better have five uh, by five o'clock on Friday, you better have $500 to give me. And Mark Kudish seems guilty, um, but we never find out if he gives the money or anything like that. It never is resolved, and I don't know the point of that. Um, so I'm confused there, but there's very little else that confuses me. The writing is of sterling quality. I mean, for example, uh, you have um, the son um, who is wants to be a writer. And how many times have we heard the son wants to be a writer while well, the father wants to, to get a job and even gets him a lead in the job, has to pull strings to get him an interview on a job? I mean, that's a very familiar tale. However, the father does believe that the kid's a good writer. He just doesn't believe that um, this is the the optimum time for opportunities to um, be here, there, and everywhere. So, so uh, that's a different twist. There are a lot of different twists on things here. For example, the daughter, Marianne, wants to go to Chicago. That's established early on. She wants to go to Chicago. So into the guest house comes a guy who um, they're, they're attracted to each other. It looks like they're going to have a relationship. And what happens? He says, I'm going to Chicago. Come with me. And what happens then is very surprising and very, very rewarding to a theatergoer to hear. By the way, Marianne is um, encouraged to marry a very old man, a guy in his 70s, uh, who will give her a good home and security. And, and you know, and that's a rather familiar situation, too. Will the girl um, choose to be uh, have a secure life with this guy who's still got money? Uh, even though she doesn't love him when um, there are no other opportunities around. And as I say, then this guy comes in um, 
uh, Joe Scott comes in and um, he's got the music that makes her dance, but you know, he doesn't have any money. And in fact, um, he has a very sordid past. The way he tells the story about his sordid, sordid past is very different from another story we hear about his sordid past. And we're not really quite sure if indeed he's telling the truth or if the other people have heard stories that aren't true at all. Doesn't this sound compelling? I mean, I think it is. And um, very, very, very well done with a lot of first line troops. That's what's really good. You know, that we have um, so many wonderful, wonderful performers in this show. And um, so, I mean, in addition to Stephen Bogardis, um, Robert Joy is there playing the doctor. Luba Mason is there playing um, Mark Kudish's wife. Um, they're the Burks, by the way. Uh, David Pitt, who plays the, um, the the Reverend. So, I mean, you know, these, these are good people. And everybody else whose names may not be familiar to you are just as potent as, as well. So it's two and a half hours. It flies by. Um, and um, there's a rumor it's going to move to Broadway. I hope it does. I hope it does well when it gets there. It's a tough show. You don't have a show about the depression that ain't tough. So, I mean, it is a tough show, but boy, is it rewarding. And, <laughs> but really truth to tell the Dylan songs, while lovely to hear, while beautifully performed, are the least of it. So, so I guess we don't have to ask in the depression, were they depressed? <laughs> plenty not nowhere near <laughs> no there's no careering uh, from career to career nobody has any career here so uh boy uh yeah well said michael do we have any other uh plays out there about duluth minnesota um not that i know of yeah that's where it is and it's um from where um, Minnesota, by the way, is uh, where Oscar Eustis, the marvelous artistic director of the public, comes from. So, uh, so I'm sure that that uh, piqued his interest as well. But it certainly wasn't just a, a hometown boost that uh, he wanted to give here. This is a very, very good piece. Duluth is mentioned uh, briefly in the lyrics to the song "What a Waste in Wonderful Town." It is oh, because yeah. it's it's very hard to get. Um, uh, titles of, of cities that have the accent on the second syllable. Um, that's why um, in uh, Bajour and Tenderloin you hear New York and Detroit uh, because the accent's on the second syllable. Duluth is one, and certainly that's why Cape Cod is the other one in uh, uh, What a Waste and Wonderful Town. So, because <laughs> they're not plentiful. <laughs> Look around. You won't find that many. It's, it's pretty, they, they had to scrounge. I mean, I guess they could have got away with Fort Worth, but um, anyway, good point, Michael. Good point. So, uh, a very hard ticket to get uh, has been extended through December twenty third, two thousand eighteen. But I understand that those tickets have been snapped up very quickly. So, uh, get the to the public's uh, website to find out if you can get to see this show before it. Uh, I hear the rumors too that they're looking for a Broadway house. So, all right. Uh, next up. Let's uh, talk about, um, Michael, you got to Carnegie Hall to see a benefit honoring Cheetah Rivera called Touch the Sky. So tell us about this. Yes, uh, this was a benefit for what sounds like a really wonderful charity called Shane's Inspiration, which uh, creates inclusive playgrounds. Uh, playgrounds that may be used by children with all sorts of abilities or disabilities, uh, you know, and who could who could ever say anything uh, negative about that kind of a wonderful, wonderful initiative. Um, this uh, 
this benefit performance took place at Zankel Hall in, in the Carnegie Hall complex on Monday the 1st, and it honored Cheetah Rivera, who, who, who was very much present to accept the award. Performers uh, included Billy Stritch, Liz Calloway, uh, Evan Ruggiero, who uh, uh, starred in, in Bastard Jones uh, off-Broadway, uh, Jim Caruso, Charlotte D'Amboise, Ali Stroker, uh, who is uh, a in a, a performer in in a wheelchair and is currently playing Ado Annie in the Oklahoma at the St. Anne's Warehouse, which is about to get a lot, a lot of buzz uh, as it opens. Uh, Seth Radetzky, Melissa Errico, Joan Ryan, and the New York Children's Chorus. Uh, it was a wonderful benefit performance in Zankel Hall, which is a really, really great hall. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners have been in it. Uh, Michael Feinstein uh, tends to do a lot of shows there and it's, it's wonderful. It's, uh, it's, it's fairly intimate, certainly compared to Carnegie Hall and, uh, just really wonderful newish hall. Um, uh, but the other performer, on on the bill, which was really special, was J.K. Simmons, uh, who has become known for his film and TV work. He was an Oscar winner for uh, Whiplash, uh, for the movie Whiplash. But uh, and this was billed as a a really special moment because he was scheduled to sing and he is not primarily known as a singer. And he, uh, he did in fact sing and did a beautiful version of somewhere from West side story. But the thing is I, um, had first seen J.K. Simmons in 1987 in an off-Broadway musical called Birds of Paradise, uh, in which he very much sang. Uh, also, he later was in Guys and Dolls on Broadway and did some singing in that. So uh, us theater folk know him from that and know that he does have a, a musical and singing background. But um, he did a, he, he just did a very lovely, beautiful, persuasive version of Somewhere. And I got to see him briefly afterwards, and I said, well, it was so great to hear you sing again because <laughs> I saw you in Birds of Paradise in 1987. He's like, oh, that was a really long time ago. <laughs> but uh, I love it when um, people start in musical theater and then achieve great success in, in film or TV, often not uh, – it, not in roles requiring singing, and then, and then they do come back to that at some point, and it's a revelation to so many people. Uh, whereas others of us are aware of that talent because we've we've seen them do it in the past. All right, so that was a one night only thing, um, uh, and we'll have a link to some photos that Playbill has online uh, that can show you some of the some of the people that were there. Yeah, Peter. Um, Peter, you got down to New York Theater Workshop uh, to see what the Constitution means with me. I saw it as well. So why don't you get us started on that? Well, uh, I'd hate to say that this is a history lesson because um, uh, immediately people are going to say, well, I'm not going to that uh, out of the question. But this is Heidi Schreck talking about uh, when she was a kid and she was a debater and she debated about the Constitution. And since that time, she's debated a great deal about the Constitution, considering that she's grown up in a world where the Constitution hasn't quite protected her, uh, the women in the way that she expected it to. So uh, it's a 90-minute show, and it's not quite a one-woman show. 
there is, after all, a judge who's there who seems to be this very officious guy from the American Legion. Where we, the set is made to look like the American Legion with pictures of the luminaries um, who have served in the American Legion. Try to find a black face among them or an Asian one. Um, you're not going to spend your time doing that because you're going to be so galvanized by Heidi Schreck, who's really terrific, um, as you'd expect her to be, and very moved by what she's saying. I mean, she broke into tears quite a few times, and I don't think they were crocodile tears. I truly believe she was moved by um, the fact that so much uh, in this country is, um, well, I think you know the word I'm going to use next. Anyway, so um, she uh, certainly gets into the Constitution tremendously, and if you don't know the Constitution, of course, while you could find it on the Internet, you will get a copy of it for the ride home uh, so you can check it out yourself and see what she's been saying really is quite accurate. She uh, talks about um, Amendment 9, and it, <laughs> it reminded me, strangely enough, of the musical Over Here, which uh, depends on somebody knowing the second verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. And um, when the person gives the second verse of the Star-Spangled Banner, it's immediately inferred that she's a spy because no true American knows the second verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. Well, <laughs> we don't know Amendment 9. We don't know Amendment 14 off the top of our heads. At least I imagine most theatergoers don't. So you have to be told about those. And some of them are pretty um, frightening considering uh, what we would like America to be. So we learned how the Dred Scott decision was, in essence, a, a temporary loss for the good guys. But uh, it was a case where you lose the battle, but you didn't lose the war. Um, we also hear a great deal about her life. And my God, I'll tell you, uh, not just her life uh, dealing with um, her mother, or but I mean, her. lots of talk about her grandmother, who died at 36 in an asylum. Um, she came over as a male order bride, in essence, and that's a very moving part of the show, a very moving part indeed. So um, we we find out um, a good deal about uh, the hypocrisy of some of the members of the Supreme Court, so it's right up to date. You learn uh, the meaning of the crucible, if you never did, and the word penumbra, so uh, it's instructional in that way too. But... Um, we must all be treated equally is basically in the Constitution, but, um, you know, it's it's not the case. And she proves it by um, by many of the things that she says. So uh, what's really impressive of the performance I was at um, was that a little girl comes on, a 14 year old girl comes on and um, they have a, a bit of a debate there. And now, of course, what the little girl is saying is scripted. But nevertheless, um, she comes, does come up with great counter-arguments, especially the fact where um, um, Heidi says uh, that the dead should not be governing the living. Uh, and she says, you know, Thomas Jefferson said that um, the Constitution shouldn't uh, stay as it is, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, the kid rebuts with, well, if if we're not going <laughs> to – if the dead aren't going to govern the living, why are you – quoting Thomas Jefferson. He's dead. You know, so that's a very good point. Um, I'm mentioning the kid. Um, the one I saw was Rose, Rose Deli. That's R-O-S-D-E-L-Y, Cyprian. And she is phenomenal. Now, the thing is, um, she doesn't do all performances. She does Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, while uh, another actress named Thursday Williams performs Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. So... Um, you would think that Thursday would perform on Thursday, but she doesn't. But anyway, um, I, I have no idea how the other kid is, but I am definitely putting um, 
Rosalie Ciprian on the Theatre World Ballot because it is a tremendous debut. And um, she's, it says in her bio, she's starting high school this fall. She participates on the debate team. So um, has graduated from a modeling school and um, has a, a passion for acting. There's not much more to her bio than that. I mean, how can there be? She's 14 years old. There's no title of any show attached to her. So I do get the impression this is her debut. And uh, I don't mean to give short shrift to Thursday because she may be equally as wonderful or even better for all I know. But if you go to see uh, what the Constitution means to me, and I think you should, um, and you're there on a Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday, I doubt that you're going to feel shortchanged by this remarkable remarkable little actress. And um, I think she might have a, a true career ahead of her. And what's so nice, too, is the beam of happiness on Heidi Shrek's face when this kid takes the floor and says what she has to say. You can tell that she's really very fond. She doesn't care if she loses the debate uh, at that point in time because she's just so glad to see a kid who's so passionate and so involved uh, with the Constitution. Even if it's scripted, you can tell the kid has really come to study what she's studied and she knows what she's talking about. So that's very valuable as well. So I saw Thursday on a Wednesday. <laughs> I, I saw Thursday, and I said to my wife, you would think that she would play on the Thursday show, but no. Uh, and uh, she was wonderful as well, uh, a little bit older. I think she, uh, Thursday, I think she said she was 17. She's a senior in high school and uh, planning to go to college to study law. Uh, she seemed to know everything. Uh, I, I don't think it was scripted, as you had mentioned. I think Thursday really yeah. uh, understood okay. what she was saying, and uh, and they had an extemporaneous debate uh, in my show. I'm sure that they had the same one in your show, where the audience decided who was going to take which side of the uh, debate. And um, we all got a copy of the Constitution, which I think uh, should be given to every single person in the United States right now to read. And uh, it's, uh, I really enjoyed the show. I thought that some of it I thought was meandering and not moving the point forward in the show. Um, but certainly it was, I think it was 90 minutes, no admission, maybe a hundred minutes or so. Um, so uh, certainly it didn't get overly long. I just felt that we sort of got off track a little bit. Uh, Heidi Schreck is uh, an immense gift, and I hope that uh, that this seems like this could be a great HBO special type of thing or Netflix special. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure that it's really a Broadway show, um, so I, I think that it would probably lose something if it went to a very large house. New York seemed like it was perfectly situated at New York Theatre Workshop. And uh, it's going through October 21st, so if you can get down to see it, really, I definitely uh, recommend it. All right. Uh, next, why don't we talk about um, the, play, the playwright's realm. Jonathan Payne's The Revolving Cycles Truly and Steadily Rolled at the Duke on 42nd Street. Peter, you got a chance to see that, so tell us about that. I'm very glad I got a chance to see it. Um, uh, it's an extraordinarily powerful play by a guy who's a social worker, I'm told, Jonathan Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, uh, and he certainly knows what he's talking about. So um, 
<laughs> we have um, Carrie Young giving the performance of the season. I keep a, a list of my favorite performances, and um, right up there with Edie Falco in The True and the, the aforementioned Janet McTiernan, uh, Bernhard Hamlet, we have Carrie Young in this play. And uh, I think she's giving a remarkable performance. Um, she's a streetwise kid. Um, she uses the F word about as much as she uses the N word. And, oh, that N word is plentiful. Be apprised of that because we're dealing with uh, black people um, who uh, certainly use it. And she certainly uses it. So does virtually everybody else she meets. Now, what is she doing? She's on a, an odyssey. She's on a quest to find her foster brother. Now, that's very interesting because what's happening here is that she grew up in a foster home and so did this young man who grew up in a foster home and they're not related, um, but she considers him her foster brother because it's the closest thing she's ever had to a family uh, and he's gone missing and she is going to find him and she tries every possible way she can. She looks up one of his old teachers. The teacher doesn't even remember who the hell he is. Um, she um, goes back to, of course, her foster mother who, and she finds out that the foster mother um, hasn't reported that the kid's missing because that way she still gets the checks. So um, she finds his old girlfriend hoping that um, – the, the girlfriend, he maybe he's returned to the girlfriend. Um, the girlfriend doesn't care at all whatsoever. So uh, we also see a great deal of um, interaction with um, policemen uh, who are none too nice, as you uh, unfortunately would come to expect from uh, from situations like Trayvon Martin and um, others. So uh, she has a tough time through this whole thing. You really come to care about her. Okay, but I it's so hard to talk about this play without spilling the beans. And all I can say is that the final scene, which you don't hear anything, no sound at all, nobody moving on stage for what may not be a minute. It's very hard to judge stage time when nothing is happening. Ostensibly nothing is happening. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's a solid minute, but it feels like 20 minutes uh, where nothing is happening and you are hoping, hoping that what you're seeing is not reality. I know I'm being very vague and I'm not being terribly helpful, but I will say that you don't know that it's the end of the play and something else happens at the end of the play that I dare say, once the play is over, I bet you have never seen at any time in any of your theater going. I don't think I have. Again, I wish I could be more specific, but I don't want to spoil it for you. Tough show. Yeah, this ain't no musical comedy, believe me. This is a tough show, a streetwise show, but you know that Jonathan Payne, and what an irony that his name, after all, is a homonym for P-A-I-N, because, boy, there's plenty of pain in this show. But thank God there's plenty of pain, the writer in this show, too, because he knows of what he speaks, and he knows how to write a play. I think you just sold a lot of tickets. <laughs> I mm. hope so. And yet, again, understand, it's harrowing. Mm. You know, not a great date show. Right. Uh, so. <laughs> All right. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And uh, you can check it out for yourself there. Uh, it's at the Duke on 42nd Street. I don't have an end date on that. Sorry, I don't have that for you. Um, Peter, you also saw the Bacchae at BAM, so uh, tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, uh, <laughs> the back eye at BAM is not the back eye you usually see, not that we see back eye so often. But anyway, um, here's uh, Euripides' famous play um, in which Dionysus wants to prove that he's a god. In this production, Dionysus wants to prove that she's a god. It's played by a woman, non-traditional casting. There is a Greek chorus that I don't think is as good as it could be. Uh, it was, it's sometimes a little hard to understand. But we are at the BAM Harvey Theater, which um, is uh, a distressed theater. We're lucky that uh, they do shows there. Um, certainly Peter Brook and uh, his cohorts brought it back to life years ago with the Mahabharata. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it, it, it's really in tatters. Uh, and there's been no effort to fix it up, and I'm not sure there'll ever be. And I think there's a part of the management that likes that it's in tatters, that it really – there are certain shows that need to be distressed. I mean, Follies would actually be very good there too. Um, but anyway, um, what is – this is a very different take of the show, and the thing I want to bring up more than anything else is not just that it's – not a classical rendition of, of the back eye. Don't look for togas or anything like that. But in the middle of it, suddenly over the sound system, you hear, I've got to be me from Golden Rainbow. I swear it. I don't expect you to believe this, but it's true. <laughs> this is the second month in a row we've been hearing, I've got to be me. <laughs> you know? I mean, because we had it at 54 Below uh, a couple of weeks ago, and here it is again. And uh, I guess Dionysus has got to be him or her, depending on how you look at it. But uh, um, but it's a So that should tell you this is a very different take of the material. So if you're a traditionalist, you figure, oh, Bam does uh, classical work so well. Uh, sure, this is um, a, a gripping evening for its own sake, but it isn't quite the Euripides story. It is very much uh, adapted and uh, changed, so be prepared for that. The only production of the Bacchae that I ever saw, I think, was the one a few years ago in, at the Delacorte with Jonathan Groff, but even that was uh, quite adapted, I, I believe. <laughs> First time I ever saw it, uh, Susan Channing was in it uh, at Theater Company of Boston. No, the Charles Playhouse in Boston. Uh, she, of course, went on to change her name to Stockard Channing. So, uh, and she had a, a very important part in it then. So uh, that's how I fondly remember it. Okay, so uh, Michael, we have a handful of things that are coming up that you should alert the uh, listeners to. So why don't you run those down for us? Oh yes. Um... I uh, Well, the Wagner College production of A Little Night Music opened this weekend and is also playing next weekend. Uh, so I wanted to let people know about that because actually uh, it closes next Sunday, the 14th. I'm going to go to the matinee on Saturday, the 13th. And that night I'm going to go see the Midtown Men at the St. George Theater on Staten Island. And um, actually, if, if anyone uh, is – up for this adventure it, it's quite simple to do that because there is a free shuttle bus from the staten island ferry uh, on the staten island side to wagner college and and back and the saint george theater is very close to the ferry certainly within walking distance so one could uh take the van uh, uh up to Wagner and then back to the ferry and then go see the Midtown Man. Uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to to having that uh, that day 
it's it's it sounds like it's it's going to be a, a, a really fun one for me. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but uh, for those less adventurous and want to stay closer to uh, the center of the city, uh, I also wanted to mention that. Uh, on Saturday the 13th at 2 p.m. at the Laurie Beachman Theater in the West Bank Cafe. Um, a friend of mine, Dan Ruth, is doing a reprise of his show, his one-man show, A Life Behind Bars, uh, which is all about his experiences as a bartender, including um, his uh, his struggles with with drinking and eventually getting through that. Uh, but it's about much more than that. It's, it's uproariously funny and also really moving in, in places. And this show has had quite a journey over the past few years. Uh, Dan first did it at, uh, uh, Dixon Place in uh, several years ago, and uh, well, just just a few years ago, and then uh, at a bar in Williamsburg after that. Um, uh, but then uh, he entered. Uh, he submitted to the United Solo Festival, uh, and they accepted his his show uh, for that festival, and that really was the start of of. Um, quite a trajectory because he went on to win almost every possible award uh, that one can win for that kind of a show at that level. He won best autobiographical show uh, from the United Solo Festival in, in, in 2016. And then uh, he, in just uh, this year, 2018, he won a beast, two bistro awards. No, I'm sorry. One bistro award, outstanding solo play. Uh, and also two Mac awards, uh, this year, best spoken word actor and show of the year. And then in addition to that, he did uh, the show uh, for a few performances in L.A. And for that, he won a producer's encore award for, from the Hollywood Fringe uh, Festival. Did you guys know that there's a Hollywood Fringe? Yeah, I did. In fact. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. Uh, lots of fringe. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so he, he did really well there. So I would really... Uh, really put this on your calendar if you if you uh if you want to stay uh, <laughs> uh close by it's it's right in midtown at the west bank cafe Lori beachman theater this coming saturday october 13th at two michael uh, uh just as a total <laughs> closing of the loop here on october 9th 2016 we did a show uh and we talked uh, you told us about the United Solo Festival, A Life Behind Bars by Dan Ruth, and also you reviewed the Midtown Men at St. George Theater. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and actually I... Uh, Life happens I, I, in I, patterns. Yeah, and I can take a little credit because when I told... Uh, Dan did not know about the United Solo Festival until I told him about it. And then he submitted, but I, uh, he told me later that he almost missed the deadline. I think he submitted <laughs> the night before the deadline. So, um, you know, I'm sure there, there are several morals here. Just, you know, uh, one one moral is uh, if you're having trouble, uh, get, you know, just establishing yourself in the theater, create something for yourself if you can. Uh, that's a really great way to start out. And then once you do that, um, just try to see what's out there and what resources are available to you and what venues uh, that you can submit to for things like this because you, you never know how far it's going to go. Oh, absolutely. All right. Uh, and then 
what we have next is uh, let's talk a little bit a, a little bit about Anita Gillette at Birdland. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, this past Wednesday, October 3rd, I went to see Anita do her t- terrific news show, Me and Mr. B, uh, re- reference to Irving Berlin, with whom she worked in the sh- Broadway show Mr. President. And uh, but that that was their uh, their big working relationship. But then uh as she recounts in this show, she she really developed quite a, a close friendship with him and stayed in touch until his death, uh, both in person and, and on the phone. Uh, she has really fabulous stories about it. This, this act um, was written and directed by Blair, Barry, excuse me, Barry Kleinbort, uh, and it's it was at Birdland. Uh, this this past week for four performances, I believe, uh, musical director Paul Greenwood uh, and the, some terrific musicians Tom Hubbard on bass, Dan Gross on drums, David L. Harris uh, was David L. Harris was a special guest. Uh, he's a very well known jazz trombonist, and and he came out now- to do to do Mr. Monotony with Anita, which was really fantastic. Um, Anita, uh, uh, speaking of previous podcasts, was our guest uh, on one of our podcasts in 2013. And uh, she, um, she really is great. And, and she also is another example of that, that uh, phenomenon I mentioned earlier of, of a performer who has their roots in musical theater and then attains quite a lot of fame in film and or TV for, for non-musical work. That certainly applies to Anita Gillette. But she um, she has a, a, a wonderful Broadway resume. And this show, in addition to her hilarious stories about Irving Berlin, uh, includes some really wonderful uh, wonderful singing. Uh, her voice is still in excellent shape, and she did a lot of the more famous songs like Let Me Sing and Be Happy. Um, uh, Mr. Monotony, as I mentioned, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Let's Face the Music and Dance, uh, two songs from Andy Get Your Gun, I Got the Sun in the Morning and the Mood at Night, and they say it's wonderful. Uh, and then some real rarities, including a song called If You Don't Want My Peaches. <laughs> I think the um, I think I read that the uh, full count of the number of songs that Irving Berlin wrote was fourteen hundred and ninety nine. Uh, so she didn't get to all of them, but she she really does some some really terrific selections in this. And uh, oh, and as a special treat, uh, she had her uh, good friend and performing cohort, Penny Fuller, come on and they did a uh, contrapuntal duet of Pack Up Your Sins and Go to the Devil. So this was uh, this was a really great show. Anita has tremendous personality and talent. And Barry Kleinbord is is a, a go-to person to write and direct a show like this. So it was just terrific. Okay, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I would like to remind you that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get to Broadway Radio's work. 
Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broaderradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today in the show notes. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia question? Yeah, the question was, the end sequence of 1776 mentions all 13 of the original colonies, but it's not a real song, is it? What actual song with a beginning, middle, and end from the same decade in which 1776 was produced indeed does mention all 13? The answer is We Sail the Seas, the opening number from Ben Franklin in Paris, uh, a 1964 musical. So... um, Faithful listeners will recall that two weeks ago only women got the answer and that last week only men did. Well, this week it was a tie between only one man and only one woman. Jeff Olenga was the first to get it, followed by Ingrid Gammerman. This week's question, what do these shows have in common? They're all musicals, but what else do they have in common? Oklahoma, Fiorello, Hello, Dolly, Over Here, Oh, Brother, Swing, and Mamma Mia. Hmm. <laughs> I think I've got it, but obviously I can't say it. <laughs> All right. Well, as soon as we get off, we can uh, check that with you, Michael. But uh, concerning last week's trivia question, uh, I, I immediately, when you gave us the answer, I immediately thought of uh, the Christopher Columbus uh, song from uh, Songs for a New World, uh, and that this is the Columbus Day weekend. So, uh, <laughs> That's right. I, I thought for a second you were going to go there. All right. So uh, if you have an answer to that uh, question that Peter gave us, uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right path. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. No drink of scotch. She might do what she hadn't altered. When I'm ignited, so excited that I start to pant. The Secret Service makes me nervous when my lamps are lit. And I say this.